friends, if you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Gospel of John, chapter 18. If you're looking at the black uh, Bibles in the chair that you're sitting in, it's found uh, on page 904. And if you're new to the Bible, the, the larger numbers on those pages are the chapter divisions, so we're looking at chapter 18, and the smaller numbers that follow after that are the verse divisions. So, Lord willing, we're going to look at the first 27 verses of John 18. And I encourage you to follow along, uh, read carefully what you hear, listen carefully, actively to what you hear, and test everything according to the standard of, of God's unerring word. So before we jump into John 18, let me once again ask that you'd join me as we ask God in prayer. Uh, for his help. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. We thank you that you have sent your son to be the light of the world, that your son is the word made flesh, and that you have preserved your words for us in the pages of scripture. Lord, we recognize this morning that your word is truth. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us now by your truth. We pray that you would open our eyes. We pray that you would open our ears to hear and to believe. Lord, even as we sang earlier, Lord, we pray that you would, that you would subdue every evil thought within us and that all of us would be rightly ordered to love and devotion to you. Transform us now, we pray, by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, uh, we're almost to the end of John's gospel. We're in chapter 18. And if you've been wa- walking with us through John's gospel, uh, one of the things that I hope that you see by now is that to rightly understand John's gospel, you have to start with the end. Because in John 20, 31, John gives us an interpretive key that helps us understand every part of where we're at in John's gospel. John 20, 31, he says, these are written. So why did he write John's gospel? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So John tells us explicitly in John 20, 31, this is why I wrote the gospel. And so in every chapter that you're at, when you're reading John's gospel, whether you're in chapter 1 or chapter 5, or chapter 18, wherever you're at in John's gospel, we should be asking the question, okay, how does this help me understand and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? How does this help me believe in him that I might have life in his name? Because every part of John's gospel fits together for that purpose. Christ is not Jesus' middle name. Christ is Jesus' title. It's, It's a word that means the anointed one or the king. Christ is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah. Both of those meaning the king, the anointed one. And not just the king of Thailand or the king of Israel, but the king of kings, the Lord of lords, promised by God that he would be sent one day to crush the head of Satan and to make all things new in a world that is broken by sin. Now, When you think of a king, a king's coronation usually means pomp and majesty and grandeur, right? Uh, Maybe one of the more recent coronations that we can recall, uh, uh, some of us, uh, is Queen Elizabeth's coronation of, of England in 1953, if you can, you can go online, you can watch the videos of her coronation. When she was, uh, on the day of her coronation, she rode in on a golden carriage. She had a scepter with a 530-carat diamond. That's a big diamond. Uh, she was surrounded all day by rich dignitaries wearing rich, elaborate clothing. The day of her coronation was filled with fireworks and parades and elaborate ceremonies intentionally meant to display wealth and glory and majesty and military power. It was quite the coronation. But if we go back 
to Jesus' coronation, what we see is that his coronation was different. It was surprisingly unusual. Now, we already, we already saw in John 13, 31, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. So we, we, kinda, we recognize that John's gospel is broken up into two parts. Chapters 1 through 12 is the book of signs. Jesus does these miracles to show his identity. The second part of John's gospel, chapters 13 through 21, are no, is known as the book of glory, where he shows his glory through his death and his resurrection and his ascension. So he announces at John 13, 31, now is the Son of Man glorified. So when the disciples hear that announcement, they expect a glorious coronation of King Jesus like man had never seen before. A coronation that would make Queen Elizabeth's coronation seem like nothing. But when we turn to John 18 and we see Jesus' coronation, we see that his is a coronation of humiliation. He is betrayed by Judas. We're going to see him falsely accused by the religious leaders. We're going to see him denied by one of his own disciples, Peter, and ultimately nailed to a cross. That is his coronation in John 18, a coronation of humiliation. And so for the disciples watching the events fold in real time, this humiliation would tempt them to believe that Jesus maybe isn't the Christ. Maybe he isn't the king. Maybe he isn't the son of God like they thought. But what they, what they struggled to understand as they watched these events unfold in real time, we today have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of seeing what happened after his death, that he rose from the dead. And so today, many people, well, they like Jesus. They like his teachings. They like his concern for the poor. They like the kindness of Jesus. And so if you ask anybody in Upper Marlboro today, most people, I assume, would be for Jesus. We are pro-Jesus. They're open to him. They're open to the idea of Jesus, the idea of Jesus that they see in their mind. They're good with calling him king even, if Jesus gives them what they want. But when Jesus confronts the sinfulness in our heart and makes the demands of us that a king does, the excitement for Jesus quickly fades. And many who were once for Jesus will walk away from him. Now for Jesus, the path to glory is humiliation, then exaltation. First the cross, then the crown. Is Jesus your king today? Is he your king today? Having Jesus as king means following him down the path of humiliation. Humiliation first, then exaltation. First the cross, then the crown. Have you counted the cost? Have we counted the cost? How can we trust Jesus in the midst of humiliation, pain, suffering, chaos, what seems like we're losing. How can we trust him as king? John 18 takes us back to the dark night of Jesus' arrest. And it shows us certain details about his arrest to bolster our faith and our resolve to trust him. Yes, he is the king. So point number one, if you're taking notes, is this. Jesus is in control. Point number one, Jesus is in control. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 12. Let's look at the text. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of these whom you gave me, I have lost no one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it out and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. If a celebrity today is caught in some scandal, if they're arrested, put into handcuffs, it's common to see them exit the police car to enter the courthouse, covering their, their, their face with shame because the paparazzi are surrounding them to record the moment for the public eye. So I want us to pause and I want us to consider Jesus in verse 12, he's arrested and he's bound as a criminal. Don't just gloss over that. Sometimes we gloss over details that we're familiar with, but, but picture Jesus arrested and bound. If we only had verse 12 to go off of, we might see Jesus arrest as a helpless tragedy. We might see it as an unfortunate accident of an innocent man kind of rolled over by life's harsh realities and oops, Jesus I guess was powerless to stop this. But verse 12 thankfully is not the only verse that we have. Verses 1 through 11 show us that that was not the case. Jesus was not a helpless tragedy. What we see in verses 1 through 11 is that Jesus is the one in charge. In fact, he's even in charge of the people that are arresting him. The scene begins in the garden, and, and it, John doesn't mention this, but it's the garden of Gethsemane. If you read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, it's, it's the garden of Gethsemane. And that garden is just to the east of Jerusalem. So Jesus went there often with his disciples to pray, and we know from the other gospels that he went, this was, his, this was his great agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he goes to the cross. But while they're praying, Judas comes in and he interrupts them with a band of soldiers who are ready to arrest Jesus. Now, you have to be careful how you think about this in your mind, because this is not just a few soldiers. Uh, the, the Greek word for a band of soldiers denotes that this is about three to 600 trained soldiers. This is a huge group of soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. Now you might pause and say, well, why would Rome send almost 600 soldiers to arrest one man? Isn't that a little bit over the top? A little overkill? Well, you have to remember, this is Passover. And Jerusalem during Passover would be swelling with thousands, perhaps millions of, of Jews coming to celebrate the, 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 the Passover feast. So that the, the city is crowded with people. And in John 12, 23, Jesus has already announced publicly, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you know your Old Testament, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, the Son of Man is known as a world ruler. So with his announcement that the Son of Man is about to be glorified, that given with Jerusalem being filled with thousands and thousands of Jews with a, a messianic fervor, this messianic expectation of a king who's coming to conquer, Rome is not about to take any chances. 
They don't just send a few troops, they send about three to 600 troops because if, if Jesus is a revolutionary, they wanna be ready. And so here's the scene. We have the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus and his 12 disciples, 600 soldiers in the dark of night coming to arrest Jesus with torches and weapons. Now, if you're in the mix of the disciples, if you're Jesus, 600 trained disciples with torches and weapons aimed at you is enough to make anybody cower in fear. It's enough to make anybody's knees knock. But not Jesus. Look at, looking at verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Think about that. They're about to take Jesus to the cross to kill him. And Jesus is not caught off guard by that news. He's not surprised by the arrest. He's not surprised by what's about to happen to him. Just moments before, he was wrestling with God in his Gethsemane prayer. He was wrestling with God about the awful reality that was just about the way, that was coming his way. The text says in verse four that Jesus knew all that would happen to him. Jesus knew that he would be deserted by his friends. Jesus knew the mockery, the slapping, the beard pulling. Jesus knew the lashings with the whip that would leave him so bloody that it would leave him unrecognizable. Jesus knew the agony of being crushed under God's righteous judgment for our sin. Jesus was not surprised by this. He knew it. He knew all that would happen to him. But he didn't run and hide. Verse four says, he came forward. Willingly, voluntarily, he came forward. Friends, do you see the glory of Jesus in this? Do you see his courage, his boldness, his love, his, his commitment to uphold justice? Do you see his willingness to submit to the Father? Do you see his love for you? John 10, 18, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. In love, he came forward for sinners like me and you. And notice in, in this dialogue with the, the soldiers and the officers, notice who's asking the questions. They come to arrest Jesus, but who's asking the questions? Not the officers, it's Jesus. Jesus sets the terms, Jesus makes the orders. <laughs> he takes the initiative in verse four, whom do you seek? And when they answer, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus once again doesn't hide his identity. He comes right out and says, I am he. And then interestingly in verse six, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Do you notice that detail in John's gospel? <laughs> I am he. Oh. And they fall to the ground. Seeing a group of well-trained war-seasoned soldiers with weapons in their hand outnumbering Jesus of 600 to one, now laying on the ground makes the idea that Jesus is helpless laughable. Jesus is in charge. Can you imagine Jesus coming over to one of these soldiers and saying, here, let me, let me help you up. Let me, let me help you up. The reason they fell is in part because of Jesus' response. Now, our English translation says, has Jesus saying, I am he, but the he is added. It's not there in the Greek. The Greek literally is Jesus responding to them saying, I am. You can see that in the footnote of your ESV text. And the Jews who were there to arrest Jesus, they would hear Jesus say, ego am me, I am. They would hear Jesus say that and they would hear a startling claim to his deity because I am is God's name for himself 
that he reveals to Moses in Exodus 3.14 at the burning bush. And so some of the Jewish people who were there would likely be startled by this claim to deity. But another reason that the Roman soldiers fell back was because of the things that they'd heard about Jesus beforehand. They had heard, very likely, they had heard about the Jews who had tried again and again to arrest Jesus. But when you read the Gospels, they try to arrest Jesus, and every time they try to arrest him, their efforts to arrest Jesus are thwarted. He just kind of walks through their efforts. <laughs> they can't do it. They knew about his working miracles. They knew about the failure to arrest Jesus in the past. And word on the street was that Jesus had raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Not through CPR, but by the command of his word. Lazarus, come out. And it happened. Who is this guy? Who is this miracle worker that we're coming to arrest? And if his word had the authority to raise a dead man, does his same word have the authority to say to us, boom, and kill us? No wonder they got 600 people who are armed to the teeth. But what's interesting is that in this tense, emotionally charged event, and these soldiers wondering what Jesus would do, of all the things that Jesus could do, he does what they never expected him to do. He steps forward, and he willingly hands himself over to them. He could say one word and wipe them out. But instead, he steps forward and gives himself over to those who are there to arrest him. Overwhelmed by it all, they fall to the ground. The mob came to arrest Jesus, and they do. But make no mistake who's in charge. The text is very clear. John adds all these details so that we don't miss Jesus is in charge. Jesus is calling the shots. Jesus is in control the entire time of his own arrest. In verse 8, Jesus gives the orders. If you seek me, let these men go. When you're being arrested, you don't call the shots, but Jesus does. The soldiers obey, and the disciples scatter, and Jesus is bound for trial. It's an emotionally charged and chaotic scene. It's a painful scene. But amidst the chaos, amidst the pain, amidst the confusion, amidst the darkness, Jesus is in control, working God's sovereign plan. Verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave to me, I have lost no one. And Jesus lost none of his sheep. Friends, the arrest of Jesus, the, 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 the binding of Jesus, the taking Jesus to a kangaroo court may seem from an earthly perspective like a tragedy. But it wasn't. When we see it through the lens of Scripture, we see that it wasn't a tragedy. Church, listen. These last three weeks have been a really painful last three weeks for us as a church. We've grieved the death of several of our members that we loved and are going to miss for a long time. We've grieved the death of other family members of our church members. And it's just like, it seems like wave after wave after wave of sorrows crashing over us. We, we, we get over one sorrow, we kind of process one, and then we stand up and then bam, we get knocked down by another trial. And it's not just these last three weeks. It's, it's the last two years. The last two years have been filled with chaos and confusion and, and darkness. And it's not just these last two years, even as we heard from Romans 8 from Pastor Tony last week, it's, it's, it's ever since Genesis 3, this earth, all of creation has been groaning. But as painful as tragedy can be, as weary as we might be from groaning, God is in control. God is working his sovereign plan. He's working his loving purposes for you, for me, for us. This is what we saw last week in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So trials, they may seem, they make it, they may make it seem like God's uh, that God and his church and his truth are losing. It may seem like we're kind of in a bus, on a runaway bus running down the hill and no one's in the driver's seat, but that's not the case. Don't, friends, don't make the mistake of looking at life circumstances just with your physical eyes. Look at life circumstances through the lens of scripture. And what you'll see is the truth that Jesus is in control and we can trust him. Jesus is in control. But Peter doesn't get it yet. So Peter being Peter, we love his, you know, his kind of, let's take this mountain. We like this about Peter, but he doesn't understand what's going on. So he thinks, Peter thinks uh, Jesus needs protection. So he whips out his sword, which would probably be a small dagger. He takes out his sword and he goes to swinging. And he actually lops off the right ear of one of the servants of the high priest named Malchus. And I think all these details are meant to remind us that John was an eyewitness. He, he, he's, he, it wasn't just a, an ear, it was the right ear. It wasn't just any servant, it was Malchus. He was there, he saw it. And by the way, he also saw Jesus pick up the ear and heal Malchus. <laughs> Peter may seem brave, but swinging a dagger when you're surrounded by 600 armed soldiers was foolish. I wonder after he cut the ear off if he realized what he did and Peter's like, oh no. And if it wasn't for Jesus, Peter likely would have been arrested and put to death. But Jesus protects him. Not one of my own was lost, including Peter. But I think Peter's actions represent any one of us who try to serve God to do a good thing, but we do it in our own strength and in our own way. When we try to do a good thing, when we try to serve God in our own strength, in our own way, we're much like Peter. As one writer notes, before we judge Peter too harshly, we have to confess that there are times when we too have lopped off an ear of our own through a misguided attempt to serve the Lord. It might be a harsh word that you've given to another church member, brother and sister in Christ, because they weren't doing things in the church like you would have done them. And you came with your words, boom, 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 and lopped off their ear with your words. Or it may be an argument that you had with a non-Christian friend or a family member in which you've tried to argue or to debate them into believing the gospel rather than sharing the truth in love, praying for that person and loving them and waiting for God to change the heart. And like Peter, we may be tempted to defend God with our worldly methods. But as Peter would soon learn, and as we need to see, Jesus does not need your protection. He did not need Peter's protection. I love how Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. (laughs) And that's what we're gonna see happen. And Peter will learn that, and so should we. Friends, to trust Jesus as our king in hard times when it feels like we're losing, we need to remember that Jesus is in control. Point number two, Jesus is innocent. Not only is Jesus in control, John 18 also shows us that Jesus is innocent. And so with Jesus bound And under arrest, they bring Jesus to the courtyard to interrogate him as a criminal. We pick up the story in verse 13. Look at verse 13. First, they led him to Annas, who was, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since the disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not! Now the servants and officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold. 
and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Now, Caiaphas was the acting high priest at this point in history. But Annas, his father-in-law, who served before him, was kind of like high priest emeritus. So we, we know from history that he still held considerable influence. And so in the dark of night, they bring Jesus to Annas, and Annas begins his interrogation of Jesus in verse 19. And in verse 19, he questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, we have to remember that the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. And they wanted Jesus dead because he was a threat. If you remember um, back in chapter 11, when, Jesus, when they witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, instead of acknowledging the miracle and what the miracle revealed about Jesus, the religious leaders said, oh no, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Jesus was a threat. And so they decided to put him to death. Friends, John's gospel, chapter five, chapter seven, here in chapter 11, here again in chapter 18, John's gospel has repeatedly warned us that a love for the praise of man fuels unbelief. A love for the praise of man fuels unbelief. If you and I care what others think about us more than what God thinks about us, we are very likely going to twist or bury or suppress the truth in order to protect our comfort and our honor and what we love more than God's approval of us. Sadly, that's what happens in this trial. Annas is trying to protect his place, his nation, and he's, as a sitting judge, he's not interested in justice. Annas is not interested in the truth about Jesus. He just wants Jesus gone. And so he's trying to find some way to incriminate Jesus. One of the things we see about the details of this trial, though, is that from the very beginning, the trial was unjust. Jewish law said that in a Jewish court, the judge would not ask direct questions of the accused. They would actually bring in witnesses to the stand and ask questions of the witnesses. If you look at Deuteronomy 19.15, Deuteronomy 19.15 says, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Where are the witnesses? There are none. This is not a just trial. Annas is fishing for something to incriminate Jesus with. But the problem is, there's no fish in the pond. Jesus is innocent. Jesus has nothing to hide. He spoke openly to the world, and so he tells Annas to do what he should have done as a judge first. Call the witnesses. Verse 21, 
Jesus says, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So in in verse 21, what Jesus is doing is he's calling on Annas for a fair trial. This is not just. I want a fair trial. Problem is, for men who are trying to protect their image, their glory, their honor, their comfort, having Jesus say that to them was too much. And so one of the officers turns around and slaps Jesus in the face. Is this how you answer the high priest? He's the high priest. Now just pause and note the tragic irony of that. Who made him high priest? Jesus did. Who's the true high priest? Jesus. So these religious leaders have put God on trial. The true high priest. And they're treating him like garbage. But that doesn't concern them. It just goes over their head. The reason that they're worked up, the reason they're angry, the reason they're worried, the reason they're bothered, the reason they're worked up enough to slap Jesus in the face was their honor, their comfort, their dignity was being threatened because Jesus was turning the lights on. Jesus' response in verse 23 is important for us. He says, if, I, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if, I said, but, but if what I said is right, in other words, if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Jesus is facing injustice. But he doesn't strike back. He doesn't call down fire from heaven to wipe these religious leaders out. And he could have. But neither does he let the evil that they're committing go unanswered. Jesus confronts the injustice in verse 23 without resorting to injustice himself. And he's setting up an example for us to follow. 1 Peter 2, 23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God cares very much about justice. That's why we have the cross. So John highlights Jesus' innocence in this section of chapter 18. But why? We've seen he's in control, that makes sense. But why highlight Jesus' innocence? Well, to understand that question, we need to look at how John structures verses 13 through 27. So imagine this is a movie that you're watching, right? He begins with the camera focused on Jesus in the courtyard with, with Annas interrogating him. So it's the, the, the camera begins with Jesus on trial. Then the camera pans over to Peter warming himself and denying Jesus in verses 15 through 18. Then the camera pans back to Jesus on trial in verses 19 to 24. Then the camera finally returns to Peter in verses 25 through 27. So why does John take the camera and pan it back and forth like that? Well, by weaving the story together like this, John makes a contrast between Jesus and Peter. We've already seen Jesus' courage. We've seen Jesus' boldness in the face of false accusations with those that have the power to put him to death. He's fearless, he's bold, he's courageous. But what do we learn about Peter? What does this text show us about Peter? Well, look, look back with me at verse 17. Let's take, let's take a moment to look at Peter now. Verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now, Moments before, we saw Peter bravely, perhaps rashly, perhaps foolishly, risk his life to defend Jesus. Now, moments later, he's a coward. He's intimidated and he cowers before an innocent question of this young girl. 
he's intimidated so much that he tells a lie. A lie that will avalanche into a big, bigger lie. When he's asked if he's Jesus' disciple, three times Peter says, I am not, I am not, I am not. So Peter denies Jesus to save himself. But notice the contrast. In verses 1 through 11, Jesus came forward three times saying, I am, I am, I am. Peter says, I am not, I am not, I am not. Jesus says, I am, I am, I am. To a bloodthirsty mob, Jesus denied himself to save Peter. Why was Jesus so bold and Peter so fearful? How can Jesus be as bold as a lion and Peter be a scaredy cat? What made the difference? Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. So when the wicked stand before the demands of justice, when the, wicked, when the wicked hear the demands of God's justice, the wicked flee, even when no one's pursuing them. They hear a leaf fall to the ground. Oh my goodness, you know? This is why as a kid, I turned the TV off when I heard mom pull the car into the driveway. It's why you slammed on the brakes this morning when you saw the cop sitting on the side of the road. It's because of a guilty conscience. Our guilty conscience fills in the pursuer that's not there and says, you know you're guilty. You know the wrong you did yesterday? You know the good that you failed to do last week? You know the, you know the wrong that you did 10 years ago? It's still unfinished. You've not dealt with that. You know you're guilty. And so we flee because of a guilty conscience. It's why Peter cowered and told a lie to the young girl's innocent question. <laughs> she was not pursuing him, she didn't have a gun, she didn't have a knife. She was not threatening him. It was an innocent question. Aren't you Jesus' disciple? But he runs. He flees. He lies. Because his guilty conscience left him fearful. Friends, as one writer put it, fear with man is rooted in the fear of not being right with God. If you knew God was standing at your right hand, with infinite power, with his right hand on your shoulder for your good, you would be as bold as a lion. Jesus was bold as a lion. Jesus was courageous and bold before 600 armed soldiers ready to arrest him. He was bold and courageous in the face of injustice and false accusations that would lead to him being killed on a cross even when he was innocent. But it was because he was innocent that he was as bold as a lion. His disciples would leave him, would desert him, but he was not alone. His father was with him, and his father was for him. And knowing that is what made Jesus as bold as a lion. You don't have to be a scaredy cat like Peter. Jesus wants you to be as bold as a lion this morning. Notice another contrast. Judas, Judas had stiff-armed God so long that his conscience became seared, calloused. God eventually gave Judas over to what he wanted. And Judas, Judas became so hard-hearted that his hard heart enabled him to commit one of the worst evils in human history. 
He had stuffed his conscience, this God-given voice telling him that's wrong, that's wrong. He had stuffed it so long that he had silenced the God-given voice of his conscience and he made a shipwreck of his faith. In contrast, Peter's conscience is guilty, but Peter's conscience is still working. He's afraid. His conscience is doing what it's supposed to in order to bring Peter to repentance and reconciliation with God and his, to experience God's forgiveness. That's what your conscience is supposed to do. If you're guilty, your conscience is supposed to accuse you. That's a gift of God. So friends, what about you? Where are you at? Are you more like Judas that you don't hear that conviction anymore? Or are you like Peter? Well, you're afraid. When you put your head on the pillow tonight, does your conscience still remind you of the wrongs that you've done but left undone and not made right? Does your conscience remind you of the good that you failed to do that you know you should be doing? Does your conscience remind you of your sin and your guilt? Do not ignore your conscience. As uncomfortable as it may be, praise God that you can still hear it today. Let the conviction of sin that God is bringing into your life lead you to God so that he can make you from, turn you from being a scaredy cat to make you as bold as a lion. Proverbs 28.1 says, the righteous, the righteous are as bold as a lion. So how do people like me and you, who are not righteous in and of ourselves, people like you and me who have sin on our records, how do we become righteous? Well, that's why we have John 18. That's why Jesus came. Look back with me at verse 11. After Peter tried to get Jesus out of going to the cross by swinging his sword, Jesus looks at Peter and asks him in verse 11, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What is the cup? The cup is God's righteous wrath. The cup is a symbol of God's coming judgment. This is why Jesus was troubled. And some gospel accounts say that he sweat drops of blood. He was so troubled when he was praying in the garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The worst part about Jesus' crucifixion was not the physical pain, as bad as that was. The worst part was not the flogging, the mockery. That was bad. The worst part was drinking the cup. Because the cup was the equivalent of you experiencing hell for all eternity. No wonder Jesus was troubled. Now, the idea of God's anger or wrath can be challenging for us. And I, I recognize that. But I want us to remember that God's wrath is not sinful, resentful, malicious. It's not the same as the infantile anger that human beings have. Our anger our wrath is often, most of the time, sinful. God's wrath is not like ours. God's wrath is the right and the necessary reaction to moral evil. If God does not react with anger towards evil and wickedness, he's no longer a good God. Think of it this way. I love my wife. But if I know someone harmed her and my reaction was to shrug my shoulders with indifference that somebody harmed my wife, you would be right to question my love. It's because I love Katie that if you mess with her, you're going to see my righteous anger. You're going to see my wrath because I love her. And God's wrath, his right, necessary righteous anger towards sin is, 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 is it's, a, it's a category of his love. He's not indifferent to evil that harms those that he's made in his image. He's not indifferent. He hates it. 
What's more, God's wrath is not him being a cruel monster. God's wrath is just. Those who experience God's wrath experience what they deserve. As Peter says in Romans 2, 6, on the day of judgment, God will give to each person according to what he has done. It's not malicious cruelty, it's a just deserving of what we, what we deserve. It's a, it's, a, it's a receiving of what we, our due is. And friends, left to ourselves, if you or I, if anyone stands before God without Christ and we receive according to what we have done, we're doomed. We will drink the cup. We've all sinned against God. We deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. And I pray that none of us this morning take this lightly. As hard as it is to talk about, we need to let it sink in. Because hell is no laughing matter. You might see it mocked in the comic strips. You might hear your friends talk about hell being a place where they're going to go hang out with their drinking buddies. Hell is not funny. You will not laugh in hell. It's horrible. And we should not wish it upon anyone. And if the thought of drinking the cup left Jesus, the Son of God, so sorrowful, so troubled, that he was sorrowful to the point of death, if the thought of drinking the cup left Jesus that way, who knows more about hell than we do, how much more should we tremble at the thought of our drinking this cup? We should not take this lightly. But the good news of Christianity is this, and we see it in John 18. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus, even though he could have hit the eject button at any point and we would receive what we deserve, Jesus didn't hit the eject button. He came forward willingly. He laid down his life willingly. He took on himself all the sins of those who would trust in him. Your sins in the past, your sins that you'll commit today, and your sins in the future. He took them on himself on the cross. And then Jesus, the innocent one, with our sin on him, drank the cup of God's wrath. And listen, he didn't drink half the cup and put it down and let, leave the rest for you to drink. He drank all of it down to its very dregs. The cup is now empty. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the last drop. So if you trust in him, there's nothing left in that cup anymore. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, church, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus drank the cup to the last drop so you don't have to. <laughs> Praise God. In John 18, Peter flees when no one is pursuing him. But when Peter sees the resurrected Christ, <laughs> he will be transformed into a bold lion. Peter's, listen, Peter, Peter's worst failure is recorded in Scripture to be rehearsed over and over and over like we're doing right now. It's rehearsed over and over, put on the big screen. Look at what Peter did. His worst failure. Can you imagine your worst sins being put up on the screen for every generation to see over and over and over again? But you know what? Peter came to the point where he could stand up before a church like this and tell you what he did. He could confess it, he could tell you it, and he could stand up and tell you the worst failure that he did. Because he now knew that in Christ, God was for him. God was for him, not because he was a good person, good grief. 
I mean, we just saw what he did. God was for him because of his grace. Because Jesus took his sin and drank the cup for him. Listen, Peter's denial of Jesus, his threefold denial of Jesus was awful. It was terrible. But it, it reminds us how we also, as those who are forgiven, can be vulnerable and can be honest about our own sin, both with God and in, with, with our trusted friends in this church. We don't have to hide in the shadows anymore. Because God loves us, not because we're good people. Good grief, we're not good people. He loves us because of his grace. He has made you and me trophies of his grace to display the glories of his grace. There's no boasting in heaven. There's, look at what God did. That's what a church is, trophies of grace. So let's not pretend like we're better than we are. We're all Peters. Friends, and if you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, turn from your sin. Be honest. Confess it. Come into the light with it. Trust Jesus. Because if you don't, you will drink the cup. But if you trust in Jesus, you will find that he drank the cup for you. Come to him. You won't find his wrath anymore. You'll find open arms. No condemnation. He died and rose again to remove your sin and your guilt and to make you today as bold as a lion in the face of the demands of God's justice. Only Jesus can do that. Trust in him. Now, Peter on that night was cold. And he was warming his hands over the fire with those who had arrested Jesus. But he learned that either he had to accept their scorn or to deny Jesus if he was going to continue the fellowship over this warm fire. Brothers and sisters, being a Christian means publicly identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus. Christianity is personal, absolutely, but it's not private. When somebody gets baptized, it's them saying, I'm not ashamed of Jesus, and I'm not ashamed of you. I believe his gospel, I love you, and I'm in this with you. Christianity is personal, it's not private. And so we must be willing to publicly identify ourselves with Jesus. Are you, Christian, are you prepared for the hostility of a world that hates God and rejects a king who turns the lights on our sin and then calls us lovingly to repentance. Have you counted the cost? That's not a threat. That's actually, that's actually God's mercy to us. Because when we do that, we find freedom, boldness, forgiveness, God's love. We should count the cost. Now, three times Peter denied Jesus. I am not his disciple. I am not his friend. I do not know him. Three times he said that. And because of fear, Peter was ashamed of Jesus. But because of his love and courage, Jesus was not ashamed to call Peter his brother. So whereas Peter would deny Jesus three times, Jesus came forward for sinners like Peter three times saying, I am I am, I am. And in love, Jesus came forward to drink the cup of God's judgment so that Peter could drink the cup of God's friendship. When Peter experienced this breathtaking, undeserved love of God, he would never be the same again. He would be transformed from a scaredy cat to a bold lion. Jesus calls us, church, to love one another as he loved us. That was his marching orders in John 13, 34, and 35. But how can we do that? How can you overcome selfishness to love your spouse when they aren't loving you as you hoped? How can you love a parent or a sibling who let you down? How can you love a friend or a roommate who's failed you? How can you love a church member who's difficult to love and is inconvenient to love? How can you obey Jesus' command to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you? Like Peter, we must look to Jesus, who came forward boldly, lovingly, courageously, came forward for sinners like us, who after we denied him and rejected him in our sin, then drank the cup for us. 
who died for us in our place so we could go free. Friends, like Peter, when you experience God's breathtaking, undeserved love, you will never be the same. You will realize that you can trust Jesus. You can follow him down the path of humiliation, then exaltation. You can follow Jesus down the path of first the cross, then the crown. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you that um, though we were undeserving of your love, though there's nothing in us that would call for your affection or your attention or your mercy, that Christ came and drank the cup for our salvation. Lord, we now pray that as we pause to remember the Lord's Supper, uh, as we drink of the cup and eat of the bread, Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, remember this truth that we saw in John 18, that we can drink this cup with joy as a cup of friendship because Jesus drank the cup of your wrath for us in our place. And so fill our hearts with joy, fill our hearts with encouragement that comes as we now celebrate this meal together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.